Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Scene is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is Katao Sakurai. Katao is a writer, director, producer, actor, and the co-creator of the Eric Andre show on Adult Swim. We're going to move outside of the world of galleries a little bit and move into the world of Hollywood because that's where we're based, L.A., And I think it's just as relevant because of this cross-pollination of the arts. And it's not necessarily just about the visual arts. It's about how we lend ourselves to a craft and continue that through our years to get to where we are right now. And Katao is sort of a perfect example of that, and you'll hear this. He was a child actor, and then he moved to New York and became a cinematographer after working on the staging of operatic productions. From there, he moved to L.A. and he started working on the Eric Andre show. But the, the story and his, his life story is really rich and full of sort of lessons for, for people trying to break into not just the Hollywood industry, but just the arts in general and, and working through sort of the issues that you deal with getting there. I had a really wonderful conversation, and uh, I appreciate him being on. So here he is. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start with basically how we know each other. We know each other sure. through a friend, uh, yeah. Chris Wiley. Chris Wiley. He lives with you when he's out in LA. Yeah. Yeah. Chris has been a friend for years and years. We met when we were both at Sarah Lawrence. Oh, you um, went to Sarah Lawrence also? Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> I just for three months and then I dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> Did you? Okay. So what, what were you studying? It's a funny story. I, I knew that I wanted to... Not be at Sarah Lawrence? <laughs> <laughs> I, that, well, that was a realization I, I eventually came to, but I knew that I wanted to make films and perform and be in that world. And I, I, I had known that since I was a, a child. And I had gotten to like two schools. I, I, I got into USC undergrad film production, um, which is like big if you want to like, you know, make films. Right. And I got into to Sarah Lawrence. Um, and at that point, I had already been making films and, and doing... Well, you were, an, you were an actor as a kid, too, Yeah, right? I, was, I was a child actor. And through child acting and appearing in a couple films, I was in... The first film I was in was this direct-to-video to action movie called Best of the Best Part 3. Oh, I have that written down right here in my notes, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a revelation for me. I don't want to like knock the subsequent films, but they, they got... Uh, they went a little downhill. They went a little downhill. So what were you doing in the first... Like, this was 1995. Yeah, I guess so. You were young. I was young. I was about eight, maybe? What were you doing? In the film? Yeah, were you martial arts or not? No, I was... I played, I played the son of um, Christopher McDonald, um, who you might know as like Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, so he played my father. You look nothing like him. No. <laughs> we'll make believe. He was my dad. This uh, uh, this Chinese woman was my mother. Um, and I was, you know, supposedly the offspring. <laughs> A little unbelievable. But basically in the movie, I got kidnapped. And, and uh, you know, Christopher Lee, who also directed the film, you know, it became his quest to rescue me and uh, my best friend, Justin. 
I, w- um, I want to go down the rabbit hole a little bit with sure. this. Because this was your first film and you went on to do subsequent mm-hmm. things thereafter. Why? Like, what got you into acting at that young of an age? Was it your mom? Your dad? No. Um, it was me. My career in child acting actually started quite a bit earlier. I believe I was four. Um, and I was, I was born in Japan. Uh, my mother is originally from, from Cleveland. And my parents separated. Is your father Japanese? My father's Japanese. Gotcha. My, my mother's American. They separated when I was three. And my mom brought me to Cleveland, which is where she is from. Right. I was enrolled in like a, sat- a Japanese Saturday school so that I could keep up my, my Japanese. Do you still speak it? I do. I do. Yeah. You're fluent. Um, I'm, I'm conversationally fluent. I can't read or write yeah. very well. I mean, I can't write. I can read a little bit. Um, and there's a lot of vocabulary that I can't, you know, that I don't have. But I'm I'm you can get quite conversant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm really grateful for that. It's like fantastic to be able to speak Japanese. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's cool. So you were at the school. So I was at the school. Um, uh, yeah, I was four. I was I I acted in a school production. Yeah, originally I was I was supposed to play a a goldfish, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, somebody dropped out. The role of the old man dropped out. Oh, a much so bigger, a much, a much, bigger a much bigger role. So, so I got, so I got bumped up from goldfish to old man. And that was the start of a, a career. It was, it was. And the funny thing is, I didn't realize it at the, at at that exact moment, acting on on stage. Well, like, you're so young. How? Well, here's the thing. I, it, it, I don't have a great recollection of like the actual performance, but. I do have like a vivid, like photographic recollection recollection of um, being in my 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 mom's room when she got the VHS cassette of the recording of the play to watch to watch, and I remember watching it vividly. I remember watching it and turning to my mother and saying, "This is what I want to do with my life." Really? Yeah, big time. That's amazing. Is that like, one of your first memories? Uh, one of your first vivid memories? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I've I've other memories uh, from that age, but that that's it's just it was just such a highly consequential yeah moment that it, you know it stuck with me. And then and then after that, my mom was like, "Geez, okay, I guess I'll take you to some auditions at the Cleveland Playhouse." So she took me to an audition um, for this play called The Butcher's Daughter. I got a role, but it was really my passion and and. I was so shy then. I was such a shy kid. And so this was your outlet? It was my outlet. Yeah, yeah. Um and and from the start I understood the power of acting for me personally, which was that you know, I had all these emotions and feelings and ideas that were inside of my body. And acting on stage and sort of breaking through this wall of shyness allowed me to use my body and my myself as an instrument, as a as a vehicle for getting across ideas and, and getting across sentiments and, and and things like that. I was uh, I was a double major in um, college, theater and art, and then I dropped theater after mm-hmm. a while, but. 
for a, a good <clears throat> wise. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Uh, <laughs> but for about three three and a half years there, I was doing that, and the stage productions were the ones where that energy that you get passed back and forth between the crowd and the the actors on stage. There's nothing like it. Yeah, it's electric. It's 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 amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand how, as a child too, especially if you're shy, that would be something that would like you'd be glued to it. Mm-hmm. So you went from that, and you were in Cleveland. Did you did you stay in Cleveland, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you did? Yeah. So how did you get? How did you audition for Best of the Best? Were they filming there or not? No, they were filming nearby. Well, I, what happened is <clears throat> my my mom was friends with an agent in Cleveland, and she started representing me. And so I would I would send in in tapes. You know, I'd receive the sides. My mom would videotape me, and um, and she would edit the videos. Um, and my my mother's an artist, and and she's a, she's a video artist, and and her work actually started around that time too. I forgot all about this. You told me about this. Yeah, your mom making work. Right, right. Um, she's an incredibly prolific artist and filmmaker, and and that was I, I, before that time. She was a musician. She was a baroque uh, lute soloist, um, and had been for you know years. And oh, holy shit! Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so it was around the time that I started acting that my, my mom needed to, in order to submit these audition tapes, she needed to learn nonlinear uh, video editing software. And that, that, this was like back in the day when like it was just, it was like the first generation of, of you know, Premiere. Uh, it was digital or not? The digital, yeah. Really? The digital, but like the first generation. But because she started editing these videos it became this sort of art practice for her. And, and she sort of started going down this road of making work in... Making the, her video art. Right, exactly, exactly. And that really kind of changed her, the trajectory of her career as well, well from music to, to fine art. This is amazing. Both of you pushed each other in these, these directions yeah. that you're, where you're at today. Right, totally, totally. Does she show? Um, she, she has a, a, a feature film that she actually produced called Shockwaves that's that's showing around but like i mean she, I, I can't explain how incredibly prolific she is and you know a, a lot of her work she she does these like installations and performances um in cleveland still or where is she all yeah in, she's in cleveland she's still in cleveland. she's in, in, in cleveland um but but she shows all around I mean, she's been doing like these installations in vienna and um wow uh, yeah it's a uh, it's it's crazy stuff and she has a very specific style that that is very kind of obsessive and you know she uses like stock footage and like kind of found footage and painstakingly rotoscopes these like gestural movements out and layers them in a very musical way sounds uh, beautiful yeah it's cool stuff does she uh, do the music for them as well too yeah yeah of course yeah and she explores a lot of ideas through that that i guess like technique that she's developed but that's you know that she's been developing over the years and and has been growing more and more complex and sophisticated. Where can we find her work if we're going to look for it? Uh, KasumiFilms.com. Okay, okay. So going in back to the acting, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, so I'd done a bunch of stage work up until that point. Well, not a bunch, but um, yeah, I'd done two big productions in Cleveland, and then I got this this role in this action movie. Up until that point, I I understood that you know. Acting on stage was, you know, really the most satisfying thing that I had, I had done. And then when I acted in this film, I kind of fell in love with the carnival of it. 
the world behind the production, the, camera, the production, the stunt people, the you know the cinematographer and the director. And, how old were you when you were doing this? I was. Yeah, how old was I? I I think we could do. Yeah, the math. I think we could do the math. I, I think it was more like more towards towards eight. Um, that I was in Best of Best. So I was eight years old. <clears throat> I, I acted in this this director video action movie, Best of the Best Three, and I just fell in love with the the world of a film. Y you know, I I I understood that stage acting was really and truly an actor's medium, right? And and I and I fell in love with the the control that is afforded to you as an actor on stage. Like you really, you know, you really have the the power to craft the experience uh it's in your hands as an actor i understood it you know during that that movie that you know filmmaking is is much more power to create an experience really you know is is in the hands of you know the the folks that are behind the camera the director the producer the, the right. individuals like setting up shop yeah and not that actors don't have power in that situation well, yes. but it's 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 different it's more complex and there's just more moving parts and there's more um it's just a different craft. Um, and, and also at that point, I, I had really fallen in love with stop-motion animation. Interesting. Yeah. My, my love of stop-motion animation came, came when I was about like four or five. To, you were making to, to, movies yourself. Yeah. I, I was in a, you know, a summer camp little workshop where uh, I remember we, did, we would shoot on like an overhead kind of a camera, little two-dimensional two scenes. And I just, I just took to it. I was like, I love this. This is, this is something that I can do. What were you doing it with? Were you doing it with claymation, or were you doing? It, what were, well, what the first, the first claymation I did was was two dimensional paper cutouts. But then pretty quickly, I started doing three dimensional like claymation. And also, I should say at that at that point, my mother was really exposing me to all sorts of film, um, like what type of stuff. Like Jans Funkmeyer and the wow. Brothers Quay and um, Tarkovsky and like she was just bringing me heavy to, shit, heavy shit. She was just like bringing me to um, whatever she was going to. You know, um, she was a single mother, uh, artist. She um, had to go to the stuff anyway, so she brought you along with it. She wanted to expose me to that kind of stuff, and I loved it. And I think that unfortunate that I think more parents don't expose their children to real raw crazy shit. You know. Um, I think it, I think as a child, I, I had it had such an impact on me in a positive way to like be ex to see things that were disturbing and to right. see things that were strange and to see things that I, I couldn't understand. My childhood was we had like the, the video cassette, the VHS, and it was uh, a three mix. It was Star Wars, Rambo First Blood <laughs> and Porky's. <laughs> and I don't I never really got to through the Porky's because it yeah. bored me. Right. Yeah, but the Rambo First Blood, I saw that thing. <laughs> I probably watched that thing 50, 60 times. Sure. Just over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. But I know you're, you're talking about watching sort of these raw things at a young age. Yeah. So you you have this love for it. I just love for it. I, you know, I, I, I just love the Brothers Quay so much. You know, the Brothers Quay, they're, these, they're from Philadelphia, these two brothers, but live and work in London and make just incredible stop motion animation you know absolutely mind-blowing stuff and heavily inspired by Jans Funkmeyer who is this Polish stop motion animation animator yeah um, who's making incredibly 
political work, but in a very veiled way because of, you know, censorship. You know, doing very strange and disturbing things with meat. You know, he's, he, he didn't use strictly clay. He was, it was stop motion animation. He was using clay, but also like meat and uh, visceral wood. And, yeah, very visceral, strange, uh, disturbing kinds of kinds of things. I just love that. You know, as a child, I was like, this is this is awesome. Um, and so I tried to, you know, in my sort of copy what he was. Yeah, they were doing. Right, exactly. And, you know, I, I, I so I did a couple classes and, and my my mom saw that I had such a love for it and got me like a little compact VHS camera that could that was capable of doing quarter, stop quarter second uh, stop motion animation. Um, so I just started like churning out stop motion animation your that mom's was like my, amazing yeah yeah this is fantastic yeah um yeah i mean she really enabled my development as as an artist i loved and still do love just craft and making things and using my hands and making you know sculptures out of paper and i was just that was my life and i was very shy and like that's that was my world was making these things yeah um and stop motion animation i think as a child if if you're an obsessive and patient child that loves sort of, you know, visual things and, and creating work and uh, that sort of like thrust, stop motion animation affords you so much control that you wouldn't have in any other medium as a child, you know, because you can set up a little diorama, you can set up a little world um, and through your actions and through your hands, you can uh, create movement and motion and, and, and a whole narrative would be really hard to do in any other way. It wouldn't be available. Way. Yeah, it just wouldn't be available to you. Well, essentially, you can create these worlds. Yeah, right. They're, they're your own worlds that you can create. And, then, right. uh, you know, growing up as kids, you know, I, I did it through art drawing. Yeah, right. You're doing it through video, mm -hmm. which is art in itself, too, mm -hmm. and your mom was doing the same. Right. How long did it take you? We This all started with the conversation about Sarah Lawrence. Mm -hmm. You are acting this whole time up until college. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I did a lot of acting and, and writing um, stage plays all throughout high school um, in the underground Cleveland um, theater community. Which so was, not just in high school, but like out in public. Oh, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I, I, I acted some in high school productions, but like really I, I was I was, you know, more acting and writing and, and doing stuff in the there was a company called Dobama in Cleveland, which is it still around. It is around, uh, but at that time, like at that time in like the late '90s, the underground theater community in Cleveland was really thriving and alive and active, um, and there were a lot of really young people in it, a lot of high schoolers who were who were doing this out of love and passion and and, and doing really quite good work and really like challenging work. I mean, like you know, staging. Um, uh, I don't know if you know the play with Sarah Kane. Yeah. Um, you know, they were staging like Sarah Kane productions with like all high school students, like in this underground like wow. theater. It was like r super rugged and amazing. So that that was my that was my home and that was my world. And so I was like just really involved in that in that scene. Um, and so acting and performing and writing and and you know, uh, even after I had discovered like my love for film, I I, I still obviously was very passionate about stage work. You did other films in that time period as well too. Yeah. Yeah, the, the biggest film that I was in was Kevin Smith's Dogma. Yeah, I was a uh, I played a Stygian triplet, like beats up God 
Did they film that uh, around the Cleveland area too? Uh, sort of. They, they filmed it in, in, in Pittsburgh. How, how far away is Pittsburgh from Cleveland? A number of hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like sort of close. <laughs> Close-ish. Uh, it wasn't like LA, you know. It was like within the, a reasonable amount of, uh, amount of time. Was there a big difference in working in a production that was as an actor at that age too between the very, I mean, the, the budgets on those two films are, or the films you've mentioned so oh, far yeah. are highly different. They were quite different. They were quite different. Yeah, honestly, I had more fun on that lower budget action movie. Yeah, as a kid, just because it really felt like being in a circus, you know. And everybody, it was, it was, a, it was more tight. Whereas Dogma, my shoot days were kind of all over the place, and so I would like go for two days and like come back and then go for another two days. And well, do, knowing what you know now, is that because of directing style, or is that what? What's the purpose of that? No, there were just so many big stars in the movie that that you were it, it was, it was, it was really about schedule. scheduling. Yeah, it was just about scheduling. So it's like. Okay, so if like Matt Damon and Selma Hayek have a scene together and they can only shoot in this, you know. Then you have to make yourself they, available. Yeah, exactly. Which is fine. I mean, that's how it's it works. It's just the way yeah, it rolls. Way, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whereas the, the first action movie I was in, I showed up and stayed for, you know, however many weeks and just. And it was done. It was done. And it was just a fantastic experience. It was, it was just so much fun. And <laughs> I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say this. But, um, you know, it was also like a very boring town. And and God bless my mother for just like Cleveland st staying there. No, no, no. Where we where we where we shot best best through is it was no, it was a a small town in southern Ohio. There was like a Walmart and two pawn shops. Classy. <laughs> and so my my mother, <laughs> uh, true to form, uh, took me to a pawn shop, and I was like, oh, that I, I really want that compound hunting um bow bow and she was like okay <laughs> uh and she had the she and she had like the the uh the person take off like the razor bladed hunting tips on the arrows yeah, yeah, but yeah. aside from that she was like all right yeah, go for it yeah um so i remember and it was like too like, it was too too hard for me to draw back. back yeah I, I couldn't draw back so like you know i i i put the 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 body of the bow Against my two feet, of course you do. And I would like, like a rower, pull you know, it back. pull pull it back with my hands, <laughs> and I was like shooting arrows into the hotel room, um, oh. like into the hotel walls, and then like <laughs> I got I got bolder, and then like sh sh like shot it like it was like a little motel, so I I shot it off the balcony into the Walmart parking lot, and I I could have like killed people, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed fine at the time. Where was your mom? She was there. She was like, hey. yeah, totally. Shoot it over there. She was like, maybe don't do that. So like, okay, I'll do it in the hotel room. And then I'm shooting arrows to the wall, you know. Um, that's wild. Do you imagine the cleaning person coming back and being like, what the hell? Yeah, no. And, and, and we realized, I, I think I had a lot more empathy for uh, understanding stories of, of, you know, rock and roll rock musicians destroying their rooms. Because at a certain point, you just get so bored. That you're like, ah, I'll just shoot some arrows through the wall or like whatever, you know. <laughs> you your rock and roll lifestyle at age eight. It started started or, young. Give or take young. a few years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, so you you get to Sarah Lawrence. Yeah. Like, wait, why didn't you do USC? I at that point I I had made quite a few films. I had a film that was doing quite well in like the international festival circuit, and and I had just completed like a, a new short film that I was starting to submit around that time. I went to visit USC to check it out. Yeah. And I, and I talked to the 
to the dean of the film production program. Oh, wow. Explained to him. Like what you were doing. Kind of what my, sh- what my deal was. I was really impressed in that he said, um, you know, you, you probably shouldn't go here. Like you're already doing film. You don't need a, an undergrad degree degree in film production to learn film production. Like that's not how you learn film production. If, and was he correct? Totally. Absolutely. You know, he said to me, look, you seem interested in things. I think you'll be better served by not studying film, but studying things that interest you and, and that you're passionate about and, and make work about those things. Was it just your story then that it worked that way because you had already been filming and you had already sort of learned that some of those things like starting or is this just the case for like undergrad film in general? I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard for me to really speak to... I mean, to each its own, you know? Yeah, to each... I mean, look, I, in general, I feel like whether you're trying to do film or not, college can be really counterproductive. You know, right? Um, it's stifling. It's stifling. It can be like infantilizing. It, it, it can send you into you know crushing debt. I think it, it for a lot of people it, it stymies their personal growth. Uh, being in this sort of weird um, like structure, high right? school like structure. It's just I think that the system in this country is quite flawed. And I really, and I intuited that at the time. I, I felt it really kind of unfair, also the cost of it. You know, my mother was a freelance artist. Well, that's a burden for her, right? Huge burden. And so I, I you know, whether it was USC or Sarah Lawrence, I, 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 I didn't like technically qualify for a scholarship when really like our financial circumstances, like it, you should, it, have. It, it should have. But nevertheless, you know, my mother was like, look, if you want to go to Sarah Lawrence, go for it. I got accepted in Chicago Art Institute. Mm-hmm. And essentially, my parents would have had to take a second mortgage out on their house yeah, for undergrad. Right. And my mom was like, we can't do that. <clears throat> like, it <throat> makes absolutely zero sense. And, yeah. you know, thank God. For, I was sort of broken at the time. I was very heartsick about it. But, like, looking back on it, oh, my, it was the best decision mm-hmm. by far. Yeah. I mean, for what? You know, undergrad. Mm-hmm. It just it didn't, it made no sense at the time. Yeah. yeah. I think for a lot of people. I, I think there's this you know, expectation to... You know, you go to college, like that's the thing you do. I'm not convinced that that's the best way for everybody to find well, themselves. Isn't. No, it it's just not. It's just not. It's just not. Um, and I think that, you know, ho- hopefully, I think that people are starting to sort of understand and realize it a little bit more. Also, when it comes with such a price tag, it's like, it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's well, like crazy. One of those things, though, too, w- with that is that if you are not going to college and you're not taking that time. And I think for a lot of people too, it's the opportunity to take the four years and not have to work Mm -hmm. and solely focus on studying. For me, that's what graduate school was. Mm -hmm. I took two years of graduate school and allowed me the opportunity not to have to do anything else at the time. Mm -hmm. If you don't do the college thing, that, that, that road, I think you have to be very driven and just focused. Yeah. You have to, I think be on a certain path of, of finding yourself or have a, an interest or a passion or a perspective on your life. And I was lucky enough to have that. And I was really lucky enough to have uh, a mentor at that time. Um, Who is this? He's an art, this artist uh, and an opera director named Doug Fitch. 
who I met when I was a sophomore in high school. I, I, I got like a, a grant from my high school to, to make a documentary on this painter um, in New York um, named Irving Kreisberg, uh, who's since passed on. He's a sculptor and, and painter. And so I was doing this documentary and I just really randomly happened to meet this, this artist. In New York? In or? New York, in New York, yeah. So I was, I was staying in New York for the summer um, at the Chelsea, Chelsea Youth Hostel. Um, and, uh, How old were you? This was high school? This is high school, so I must have been like 16. You were by yourself? Yeah. Your mom is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, but like, that's crazy. Yeah. New York City? Yeah. Very bohemian. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I was really lucky enough to have a, a, a very bohemian um, teenage to late 20s life. Okay, um, so you met this guy. Yeah, some of this guy. Doug, who's you know older than me, you know he must have been like, I think he was forty, yeah, um, and I was like sixteen, seventeen, and and I met him at this party um, in Fort Greene um, that I just <laughs> randomly went to at sixteen. At sixteen, there was just a special chemistry. You know, sometimes you meet somebody and you're like, I know you, yeah. you know, like there's a special kind of thing that happens where you just feel a kinship and. And have a, a deep understanding. It was just automatic right away. It was automatic right away. And right away, you know, I started spending a lot of time with Doug. And he really kind of became my, my mentor. You know, we kept in touch uh, over the course of that year. I, so I, I ended up getting accepted into Sarah Lawrence and going to Sarah Lawrence. Yeah. And, you know, so between my sophomore and, you know, senior year, around that time, you know, I, I'd, I'd made a, a number of films that were you know, doing the festival circuit. You know, Sarah Lawrence, it's like a, a couple hour train ride from, from New York City. Um, and I was going to New York City to like, you know, uh, hang out with Doug and like do things, have dinner. Yeah. And I got this message from the, the Stockholm Film Festival saying, um, oh, we you know we just saw your, your new film. You know, we love it. You should come and, and represent your film. Like we're going to show one th that you made. Or yeah, one? yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Uh, it was a film that I, I had. So the first, the first like big film that I'd made in high school was like this. It was quite a big production, a shot on film, and and was quite involved in sixteen um, millimeter or what we thirty five, thirty five, yeah, and uh, did really well. I mean, it it, it kind of got around all over. <laughs> I can't believe how uh, I don't know if it was like. I don't know if it's like like pretentious or precocious or what, but uh, after that experience, this was around the time that the Dogma ninety five movement was really uh, popular, and I just loved Dogma ninety five films, and I I loved Harmony Korine, and I loved Julian Donkey Boy, and and um and I was just like obsessed with that that idea, and like I, I after having done like a really big production, I was also like really obsessed with the the idea of working with constraints. And In what way? In the way of, uh, you know, so, so, so Dogma 9 to 5, you know, you're, you're not allowed to, like, really bring in additional props or additional lighting. There's, a, all, you know, all sorts of rules that ideally create something that's authentic. That's the idea of, you know, Dogma yeah. 9 to 5 is, is creating an, an authentic experience. And I just, I, I just love that idea. I was like, this is fantastic. I, I want to um, make a film like this. And it's accessible. Yeah, it's very accessible. Um, and so, and so I, I made a film called Joseph and Julia. Um, and I shot it on DV, but then had it transferred to 35 in the way that like, you know, Julian Donkey Boy was. Gotcha. Um, and so it was like a very raw, visceral, like crazy, weird looking thing. But, you know, it was projected on 35. So it had this 
the strange quality to it. And it was very sort of raw, but also allegorical and, and really without dialogue. Uh, How long was it? Maybe 11 minutes. Oh, okay. I'm going to say. And so, and so this festival, you know, loved this film and invited me to, to show it. And I was really kind of struggling with that because I really wanted to do that. But I was in Sarah Lawrence, you know, I was writing a paper on, you know, on the Odyssey and what I did take away from Sarah Lawrence was, was a, um, uh, I was taking a, 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 a photography course with Joel Sternfeld. Wow. Um, which is where I met Chris. Uh, yes, I would imagine, right? Yeah. And I was lucky enough to, to, to be in that, that course as a freshman. Like, uh, you know, I think Joel didn't usually let freshmen into that course, but, you know, I talked with him and he was like, ah, oh, you seem, you seem cool. You seem like, mature, like you're <laughs> 16 going to parties. Like, yeah. So he was like, okay, you can take this course. It was basically just like a crit course, you know. You know, I, I had a great time. Joel uh, was like, I've seen Best of the Best Three. <laughs> you were fantastic. <laughs> I, yeah, it, 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 it taught me a lot. I mean, it was a really fantastic experience. And, and again, you know, the, the, the best thing I, I think I got out of the experience was my friendship with Chris. Yeah. You're so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I remember going into the city to, to meet Doug. And saying, you know, I'm really uh, struggling with this choice because I, I, I want, I, I would love to go to Stockholm and and show this film. It's what I want to do. Like, I, it's this important. Is, this is the, this is the thing that I want to do, but I feel stuck in college, doing things that I don't fully want to be doing, surrounded by people that don't really know what they want to be doing and are using this as an opportunity to find themselves. Whereas, like, I felt that I had you already found my out. voice. I, I, I knew what I wanted to be doing. Uh, and he was like, well, you know, whatever you decide is, is cool, but it's such a coincidence because if you're going to be in Stockholm for those dates, then right after the film festival, I'll be staging a production of Wagner's Das Rheingold with the you know, Royal Concert House. And if you're there, you could go. Well, he was like, you could help stage it with me. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, you were like what choice is there yeah so so i thought I, I thought to myself like huh this is this seems um fortuitous yeah like fortuitous and 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 like i just it just seemed very clear you know i i i had this choice in front of me to to do really what i what i wanted to be doing what you was, thought you should be doing the whole time anyway yeah yeah um and it just became very clear it, it, it felt like before I realized that dropping out of college was a thing that I should probably do, I just felt so stuck. You know, I yeah. felt like stuck in the expectations of like, oh, I, I need to be doing this thing that's going to leave me in debt forever. But it looked good on a resume, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? In or, theory, or will right. it? No. Or will it? Like, Especially no. for what you were going to do. Yeah. And I knew I wanted to be an artist and make film and, and be in that world. So I just realized I... I the best thing that I could do was just follow what I was passionate about and, yeah. and, and go to Stockholm and do this film festival, show my film, um, help Doug stage Das Rheingold, um, was have an adventure. It was incredible. It's so wonderful. You know, it was a really like indie kind of staging at this like incredible, you know, at that, at that time, Doug was, was doing a lot of work um, in these sort of like mini stagings or like, like kind of like chamber opera stagings where it wasn't like a full, full on production but people wanted something more than just 
musicians on a stage. They wanted some kind of stage elements and some kind of like action and some kind of some something theatrical, nice. And so the the budgets at that time for like the the things that I I started working with Doug on were not big, and so we had to be very creative about how you'd actually you know, stage it. Make yeah, it exactly. Right. In the bank. Exactly. And so, you know, and, and really that was really Doug's vision and going about those productions. Well, I, I guess I'm kind of jumping, jumping ahead a little bit. So I, I dropped out of college, basically started apprenticing with Doug, with Doug full time uh, as his like main assistant. This worked out perfectly. Yeah. Um, and so I was getting a paycheck from Doug. Um, we were actually living together. Doug had studied cooking and uh, had... Uh, a lot of his experiences was was in Italy with um, this artist uh, Gaetano Pesce. He was a sculptor and and you know was doing these like really weird, amazing things. Did Doug work with him? Or yeah, yeah. Apprentice well, so, with him? Yes, exactly. Wow. So, so he's like passing it down. Right. So so Doug really knew how to work with an apprentice because he had he had done this the same kind of apprenticing. He had with been this, the student pr- prior exactly. to you being this. Exactly. Oh, this is so cool. Right. Um. So so you know it, it wasn't just like art making and how to build things. It was really, you know, he really taught me how to, how to cook and how to live as an artist. Just and, life and experience. Just life experience. And that, that was like distilled and passed down. To how to me. survive. Yeah. In a good way. Right. How to survive and, and, and how to um, just approach life, you know, um, with the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How to approach life with, with a certain amount of pleasure and, and vibrancy. He sort of really like instilled that in me and, and, I'm I'm very passionate about cooking. I love to cook. I think the the way I approach cooking is really comes from straight from m- him. Really straight from him where it's like very improvisational and bold and unafraid of flavor and um you know, it's like you 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 learn enough to be intuitive in how you cook and and really understanding cooking as an experience that you're giving somebody. Uh, one secret that he taught me was if you get really good at cooking, no matter where you go in the world, you'll be welcomed. You know, if yeah. you can, if you can show up and cook well, then you have with, an access to with whatever's available. With whatever's available, um, then you have an access to that that culture and that that community and, and that environment that you would never have otherwise. I, I really took that to heart. I've um, never even considered that. That's brilliant. Though. Yeah, and it's true. It's so true. Traveling in South America or Asia, like. You know, you, you meet people, you have friends. And then for me at that time, and I guess now too, I consider a trip to be successful only if I can throw a dinner party. Really? Yeah. Otherwise, it's like fine, but it's not really a trip. So do you have to be somewhere for an extended period of time then to have that actually happen? Helps, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. And that's, I think that's another reason why I don't like to travel to a place for like a day or two and see the sights. Like I, I, I would much rather go to a city and, and be there for, you know, a week and a half and make friends and learn the market, make a dinner and kind of get into a rhythm. You just got back from Rome. Yeah. Did you throw a dinner party in Rome? I, I cooked with my half sister. Yeah. Did you? Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. What and did you make? We made fried baby octopus and a lot of little just little like finger foods. I I I brought. I, I was in I was in Spain before that, and I smuggled some Iberico ham from Spain. From Spain, yeah, which is fantastic. My sister is like a big foodie too. Does and she so, cook well? Yeah, well, she, I, I I believe so. Um, I I didn't get to taste any of her food. You said you cooked with her though. 
Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was more me cooking because it was my place. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I can only assume she cooks well. No, I, I, well, <laughs> it was different from like her, like organizing a meal and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It was, it was slightly different, but no, she has a really good sense of food. And I think that that's something that, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I had not really, it was really the first time that we had hung out. So um, this is, I, I was talking with you a little bit about yeah. this last night. You didn't grow up with your sister. No. So this is a new relationship. Yeah, it's a new relationship. And and it's it's amazing to kind of understand who you are a little bit better from Yeah, I I You took that away from there? Yeah. It's it's difficult to talk about. I think I'm still like processing that experience and what it means. It'll take a while too. Yeah, and I think it'll take a while. And 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 also, you know, my relationship with my sister is developing. She grew up with your father? Or? Yeah, she grew up with my father. So so I, I I didn't have a real relationship with my father, you know, throughout my my adult life. And and the last time I saw her when was when I was like nineteen and, and she was she's twenty six now, so she was yeah, quite a bit younger than me. Yeah. But now we're like both adults. And, and she lives in Rome. And she lives in Rome. She lives in Rome. And she's a musician? Yeah. A violinist. And you know, I I I didn't really have a, a strong relationship with my father, but I, I knew that there were a lot of things inside of me, obviously, that came from who he is. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, for, for my mother it was like an interesting and odd experience raising me because she saw your she, dad in Yeah, she, right, exactly. Even though like I, I, I hadn't been raised by him, there was still so much of me who well, it's was in, him. It's inherent, right? Yeah, it's inherent. You I mean, can't like, you can't get away from it. Yeah, exactly. And so really meeting my sister and finding how many things we had in common just as people and how we approached life and food and taste and just disposition, you know, I, I, I kind of got to know who, who I was, I think, a little bit more. Understanding the, the, the person who, because we share a father and because we share this person in common, um, and understanding like what we have in common, it really also made me understand more about who my father is, I think. Yeah. Um, is your father still alive? Yeah. Yeah, he's in Japan. Which is a, uh, was a really sort of touching and interesting experience. It's a lot to digest. Yeah, it's a lot. That's really nice. It's very touching. Yeah. So you started working in all these productions. Yeah. You, when did you come to LA? I came to LA four and a half years ago. Oh, so um, not very long ago. No. Out of where? Out of New York? Out of New York, yeah. So I was in New York for 10 years. So, so I, what I was doing in New York was I, was I was working with and apprenticing with Doug, doing all sorts of opera productions, and you know, still maintaining my, my passion for, for film. Like I, I never lost that. Um, but I, I just understood that my experiences with Doug were just so valuable. Um, I, just, I mean, I believe that this model of whatever, master-apprentice, is the most... Or like the most like efficacious way of transmitting knowledge, uh, f- for me, I think I mean, it's it's a it's a you know it's a dynamic that is as old as time. I think it's been around forever, especially for artists too. Yeah, right. It's incredibly valuable. Yeah, like lessons you wouldn't learn otherwise. Right. I mean, I essentially apprenticed under my dad to learn carpentry, mm-hmm. and small things that he taught me around that you wouldn't learn those out of a book. No, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, just a little. Like the little hand feel sort of subtle. It's like there's a lot of things like as an artist that are very subtle and hard to explain. Um, well, it's easy to say sometimes you 
people rationalize it and they say it's intuitive, right? Well, really what it is is like a learned skill over mm-hmm. a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And it's intuitive because you've learned that skill set and you just know it like the back of your, back mm-hmm. of your hand. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think those little things in, in doing the apprenticeship and learning through those, those methods and means teaches that. Yeah. I, and I think that like <clears throat> what apprenticeship is, is good for is if I believe that people have natural inclinations for things. You know, I, I think that some people are truly naturally inclined to be, you know, uh, doctors, healers, yeah. um, working with the, the body and to, you know, fix what ails you. You know, I think that certain people are just naturally inclined to do that um, in the way that like other people are naturally inclined to uh, towards visual art. Yeah. Um, or naturally inclined towards, you know, uh, making things, carpentry, whatever have you. Do you ever wonder with those people, though, too? Like, I, I, be- I believe that as well. But, like, how many people just miss that where they should be pointed? You know what I mean? Yeah. And just, I, I think they're it, never introduced to it. So right. how would you know? Exactly. And I think that's that's the problem and that's the issue with, you know, the the uh, higher education in America is that it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't value, I think that with, with, with music... It's there, yeah. Oftentimes, like classical music, you know, like if 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 people show an aptitude for, you know, towards playing violin or something, you know, it's not it's not unusual to, you know, go down a really professional you know, right. track and and go to a conservatory and things like that. That's that's uncommon, I think, in other disciplines. And I was just very lucky enough to have the opportunity to have what my natural inclinations were amplified. So how long did you work with Doug in New York? You were there 10 years. I was there 10 years. Um, I worked with Doug solid for um, like four years, four or five years. And then what? And then I started doing cinematography on pretty big budget rap videos. Wow. Like what? Yeah. The biggest video that I did, well, I, I, you know, I, I met this director named Edwin DeSena, who's from Passaic, New Jersey. Really smart guy, but like, like you know, he, he was from, he was from the, the hood. Uh, and at the time that I met him, I was very into, you know, art films and art and like, <laughs> it was, a, it was a really weird match. It was a really bizarre match, but we had this like chemistry or it was what? chemistry. You know, we just yeah. like loved each other and, you know, we just made each other laugh and, and we're just such good collaborators with each other. So he brought you on. Yeah. Um, I mean, we started, we started doing really low budget, like reggaeton videos you know, like the like we started doing videos that you know had a budget of like a thousand dollars. And he was a director. He's director. Okay, so and had you done cinematography before this or not? Uh, yes, you yes, had. I I had. I mean that 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 was a, uh, I should say that cinematography and photography were were things that I was I was just inclined to do when I was a when I was in middle school. I built a a dark room in my in my basement. We converted the little bathroom in the in the basement. So you to, developed to your own room. film. Yeah, yeah, everything, printing, and yeah. 35 millimeter, 4 mm-hmm. by 5 what were you doing? Yeah, 35. That's so cool. Yeah, and the medium format. Very uh, industrious kid. <laughs> I, just, I just loved what I loved. You yeah, know? yeah, I no, just, I just loved doing the things that I love doing. Yeah, and I've just like, you know, tr- tried to stay true to that impulse, which is like a, a whole other story in Hollywood, I think, you know. Right, to um, stay on the, the path, right? Yeah, just like stay on message with your passions. How long, you were doing that for how long then? Another, uh, like, five years. Wait, you never said what your biggest video was. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, Ply, uh, Ply's featuring T-Pain, uh, a song <laughs> called Shoddy, uh, which was, like, a big summer hit. Um, and that was, like, the biggest budget. You know, we shot on 35, and it was, like, a big production. But, you know, w- w- 
our first few videos together were these like low budget, you know, um, you know, we were back back then we were shooting on, I don't remember, but like, you know, XL1s, XL2s <laughs> with, um, you know, like the lettuce uh, uh, mirrored adapters where you could put like 35 millimeter lenses on, but it would like go through wow. this mirror and it, it was really janky. I bet it looked cool though. It looked cool. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm not one to like super big myself up, but at that time and, you know, I hope still now, like I really had an eye. Um, yeah. I mean, like I, I, I made best use of what we had, you know, Edwin really was, was great at, you know, conceiving of, of concepts for, for videos and, and, and bringing like a rawness and like an, just like an industriousness to it. And, and I was really good at capturing that rawness in a, in a very artful and, and beautiful, seductive kind of raw way. We're all going to go back and watch a T-Pain video. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but we did, you know, and, 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 you know, I think that, you know, people within the, the music video industry kind of liked what we were doing. And pretty soon we were doing bigger and bigger videos. And, you know, like within a few months, we, we graduated to shooting all the videos on film on Super 16 and working with bigger artists. And, and, you know, it was always Edwin's dream to not do, to not do reggaeton. Uh, and then that, 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 that dream was realized. Uh, we, we stopped doing reggaeton videos and, and, and eventually did you know, hip hop videos on film with like a very specific kind of style, you know, for, for me, you know, came a lot from, you know, Dogma 95 and, you know, Gaspar Noé and, and, um, you know, these like, you know, Danish films for Edwin was, he was coming from the streets and, and really wanting to make something like real and authentic that represented, you know, the environment from which he came, you know, trap houses and like selling drugs and like what that meant. But like looking at those things in a way that wasn't, what's, what's the right way to put it? That wasn't putting too much of a gloss on things, but trying to really photograph the realness and like the pathos yeah. I think with those situations, you know, we weren't making like blingy booty videos. We were making videos that, that I think showed the world that the artists that, you know, where the, the people came from. Yeah. Where they came from in, in, in a very, um, in a very poetic way, you know, it was like really trying to use film and, and show these environments and really using like visual poetry. Well, you're not just cashing a check. Right. Right. Yeah. So what made you come to LA then? It was the Eric Andre show. Really? Yeah. Okay. So this is a good time to transition into you're the producer, director mm -hmm. of the Eric Andre show. Mm -hmm. Cartoon Network. Yeah. Adult Swim. Right. What's the difference? Because last night I was talking to somebody and they're like, no, not Cartoon Network, Adult Swim. Yeah. They're very, it's a very pronounced difference between the two things. A little yeah. Bit. Basically, it's, it's, you know, the way to look at it, they're two different channels. One channel will have a... Um, you mean for programming? For programming, yeah. Some people say it's like, oh, it's like a different programming block where like Adult Swim has its own executives and its own like, you know, programming mindset. They do. They have their... It's a totally, separate. it's totally separate. They have nothing to do with each other. Do, do a lot of networks work like that though? No. Right? This is no. unusual. It's unusual. It's unusual. So why, what makes it work? Well, what makes it work is, is, is Mike Lazo. Um, who created Adult Swim and his vision and the, the other executives, um, Walter Newman, Cameron Tang, that really kind of developed the programming for, for that programming block. And the way they do it is, is completely 
bizarre and unique and idiosyncratic and visionary. And that's why they're so successful is because they, they do what they want. You, uh, you were kind enough to invite me last night to a premiere for Brett Gelman. Yeah. He has a special coming up. Right. On Adult Swim. Brett Gelman's Dinner in America. Yeah. Yeah. It was fucking intense. Yeah. And it, it was about race. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine very many networks putting that on TV. No. I mean, it's pretty impressive that the leeway they, they provide for viewers, much like the Eric Andre show. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with the show or like where, where does your, your place in that show and how did it come about? So I was, I was at that time I was, I was doing cinematography on a lot of different things. Um, also dur- during that time I, I had just finished uh, directing, um, like writing and directing a feature film called Aardvark. Um, which I actually watched today. Oh, cool. Nice. Other side story. Yeah. We were sitting at your house one night. I was just talking and I was bringing up something. I had mentioned a film that I had seen on like Xbox video or Mm -hmm. something like that. And I didn't know you guys made that movie. Do you remember this? I was sitting in the place, basically Aaron, um, who was your roommate. Yeah. Cinematographer as Mm -hmm. well too. I was sitting there and I was like, oh, I saw the preview for this crazy film. Oh, yeah. I, Do you remember that? I recall that. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I saw this preview for this crazy film and it had a, a blind guy and he yeah. was doing jujitsu. And, yeah, right. and I was like, and you're like, what? That's, a, that's my film. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? It was totally crazy. <laughs> no, it was, uh, that moment was crazy. Yeah. The film's quite good. Thank you. Hearing your background and knowing where you're coming from and everything. It totally makes sense when you watch that film. There mm. are these really quiet moments throughout a lot of it. Well, the the introduction too. I just took note. Like it has the the main character, uh, a blind gentleman, walking through the woods and everything. But there's nothing said for the first. I think like three minutes and I wrote it down. Three minutes and like fifty seconds. Mm-hmm. That's a long time for any film to have sort of silence going on and sure. paying attention to. It. But to like run the intro of a movie like that too. Mm-hmm. It speaks to everything that you've been talking about this whole time. Mm. It also, seeing where you're coming from with the Eric Andre show and everything as well, too. Mm. There are really moments of sort of, they're hard to sit through mm-hmm. in, in that film as well, too. There's, yeah. It, there's some really uncomfortable stuff in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can see that, you know what it is? It's not necessary. it's tension. Mm-hmm. So in the thing, in, in Aardvark, there's a lot of tension going on through the scenes that you've set. And I, I was thinking of a scene sp- specifically too, where he goes looking for uh, a person. And he ends up in this bar and he's up and this guy tackles him mm-hmm. and you're dealing with somebody with a disability mm-hmm. and these people are on top of him and yeah. it's all filmed from a distance. Mm-hmm. So you're never up on the scene. Mm-hmm. You can't really see what's happening to him. You can hear the grunts and the groans and everything that are going on. And it, it was just really, it was tense and it was like really perfect for what it was. Great stuff, man. Thank you. Thank you. So you filmed that before Eric Andre? Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. Got you. Um, and it was just after that, that we shot the, you know, what's called the presentation or sizzle reel for, for Eric Andre show. You know, I should say like, I, I think I, I discovered a lot about myself through making that, that film. I, you know, I really love allegory, I think, or like an allegorical tone what you're seeing is like raw and real, but it also exists on like a, a kind of on another level. I did would you, say. Did you write that? Yeah, yeah. You wrote it as well as right. uh, produced. Yeah. I 
discovered my love for comedy, I think, on that film. Really? Yeah. And there's not a lot of like super like ha ha moments in it, but there are like this kind of uh, by virtue of the fact that it's like what you're what's happening is kind of like absurd and, and strange and bizarre. You know, I think my favorite part in a certain way of, of, of that film was um, working with this pr- this guy named Dutch. Uh, who played the role of of this uh, you know this cop this detective? Yeah, that guy was intense. <laughs> yeah, um, but he's not an actor at all. He's uh, not. No, no way. Uh, uh, were were a lot of those people in the film not? Like, no, nobody was an actor in that film. Larry Lewis, the, who is the the lead guy, yeah. who is blind, right? And this is partially based on his life as well, yes. too, right? Yeah, he's a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, all oh, that's true. It, that's all true. That's all true. Interesting. And does he actually do jujitsu? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, you know, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but the first half of the film is is a very cinematic narrative uh, film about this guy, Larry, who is a congenitally blind man, a uh, recovering alcoholic who starts doing jujitsu at this um, at this academy. And his teacher is this guy, Darren, who's a much younger black man. And they they form like a very special bond, a friendship, a friendship where they hang out outside of yeah everything as well too. Exactly, they're sharing things that they normally wouldn't share as a teacher. Right, but this is also well, but this is sort of like I think back to your your story about student and pupil. Yeah, it, totally. Yeah, right. I, I mean that that totally reflects on that. And 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 for me, the the sensation that I had when I met Doug and realizing, oh, this guy is. Uh, He's like weirdly like me, or he he weirdly is me. You get that sense in the movie too of these two people. Yeah, who have like a, a special bond, like something very special and almost like supernatural. It's not quite the right word, but that's that idea where it's it's something beyond ordinary reality. When you meet somebody and and you you say, "There's a link here. There's a bond. We were meant to be." in a situation together. Well, and it gets to a point in the film as well, too. I guess like the rest of the film being, it, it reaches a, a situation that's sort of tragic. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, uh, what's his character? Is it Larry in the film mm-hmm. too or not? Mm-hmm. Then, then Larry has to um, decide what he's going to do carrying on the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, but those moments of like the coupling of the two characters and stuff too became really uncomfortable at points as well too. Mm-hmm. I was wondering the, the writing struck me even the first time they, they see each other at the beginning, they, they meet it. Larry standing outside the jujitsu place, just mm-hmm. sort of listening to what's happening. Yeah. They, they meet and have a conversation. How much of this is ad libbed and how much of it is actually written? It's mostly ad libbed. I would, I would, I would give a direction, uh, where I would sort of outline the thrust of the conversation. And I had this um, very kind of, <laughs> a very kind of conceptual take on performance and directing, where I was saying to myself and other, and everybody else, there was no, in, in any sort of performance that happened in that film, I never made any sort of value judgment on performance. My credo was whatever happens in front of the camera with these people who are not actors is just intrinsically interesting. And not that I didn't care what was happening, but just the fact that we're capturing this thing. But this goes back to your dogma thing too, right? Yeah, right. I mean, exactly from that place. Right, exactly from that place. Where I was with Aardvark, 
I made a new set of rules for myself. I sort of internalized the sort of Dogma 95 mentality of saying, okay, I'm adopting these rules. That's what I'm doing. And with Aardvark, I conceived of a different set of rules, especially regarding performance. Tell me if I'm correct on this too, because you're dealing with people who are not actors. Yeah. If you provide individuals who are not actors lines to read, you could run into issues as well too, because they're gonna, it's going to seem like they're trying to act mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And for me, it never felt that way. It felt like people dealing with each other in these very real sort of ways. Mm-hmm. And that's why I asked the question of how much was improvised or not improvised. Yeah. Not that it felt improvised, but that it felt real, and I knew they weren't actors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that struck me as odd. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really cr- creating an environment where, and I, I think especially working with non-actors, but also, you know what, working with actors, if you create an environment where you are not using a lot of language where it's like, this is good, this is bad, do it like this, do it like that, but more accepting what happens and trying to kind of respond off of what, what's happening and give, I mean, this is going to sound corny, but like, you know, you, you, you try and inspire and guide as opposed to control. So you use that same thing with the Eric Andre show as well, too. Eric is, you know, he's a performer and, and, and he can take notes in a way that, you know, I would never give notes to a, a non-actor, or even other actors, you know? Really? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, like, Eric... Because he's a comedian, or why? Well, because of his approach to acting and comedy. Um, just which, him individually. Just him individually. You know, like, like Eric, really, Eric really likes very specific, minute, detailed notes at certain times. Whereas other actors and performers, it's like, don't want that. This is really interesting to me, too, because if you watch the show... His method for that, you probably wouldn't get it. It seems so free for all. Yes. Well, I think Eric's method is, um, it comes from the fact that, that, that before he started performing, he was a musician, a very talented musician. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so, so everything that you're seeing in the show follows musical rules, follows like a, a musicality, how we shoot it and especially how we edit it. Like there's a, there's a, a musical flow to everything. Um, and you know, like Eric is very involved in, in editing and, and post production. Oh yeah. Extremely so. Um, and he'll give notes like, oh, the edits should be like quarter notes here and then, you know, transition to this or, you know, like uh, oftentimes like the language that we use is, 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 is musical, is very musical. Um, and I think that the way he performs is more like a musical pr- performance than, than, um, an acting performance. I mean, uh, it, it, it sounds weird to say that because, of, like, of course, Eric is a performer, an actor, and a very talented one, you know. But working with with him is, I think, very different f- from working with somebody who is not a musician, right? Um, I mean, you know, to, to each their own. I mean, every performer is different, and everybody needs to be nurtured in a different way. But I think that, like, starting with, you know, Ardvark and and even before, you know, I, I think that the the way that I try to direct is to you know, to create a tone and an environment which is welcoming and accepting of the performer. Um, and, you know, I try to never criticize, um, but to, 
guide and inspire and give positive re- reinforcement and, and feedback and and just have a good time. So also to describe the show a little bit. Well, basically, yeah, to explain the show, the format is a late night talk show where Eric is the host, Hannibal Burris um, is the co-host. Yeah. Um, and so there's like a, a monologue and, uh, you know, guests that, that, that Eric and Hannibal interview and a, a finale at the end, usually, usually a musical finale. But between those bits, we go and do street pranks, hidden camera street pranks that are very like absurd and crazy. You know, Eric bursting through a plate glass window, things like that. It's really intense. <laughs> it's really intense. And the show moves really fast, you know, like it's, it's an only an 11 minute show, but you know, we have like more segments in the show than there's a ton of something. Yeah. In fact, you did a segment in an art gallery. Yes. Where he walks in and knocks over all the fucking artwork. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so that segment, if I can just describe it, like Eric walks into the art gallery. Um, he trips over a sculpture and falls into this massive sculpture and people are freaking out. So like, you know, Everybody in the art gallery is a, is a real person. They don't know that they're being filmed. There are no actors in any there's of no his, actors. They, they're, they're, any of these street scenes, there's not actors in no, there. No, no. There's no act. We don't use actors. We don't use fake performances. All the make, reactions that you're seeing are real. It makes it so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Eric like crashes into this huge piece of art. People are freaking out. You know, Eric gets up and people are helping him. And suddenly Eric turns and he says... He says, this art hurt me. <laughs> and he starts destroying all of the other art in the art gallery. And he's saying, like, this art is terrible. You're living a lie. Um, and which, you know, makes people even more crazy. Um, <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. It's so good. But it's also, like, very satisfying. You know, it's like being in the art world, uh, it's, it's a satisfying bit because, like... Y- you, you just want to so you just want to do, do that it. like you just want to go into an archive and just like destroy everything this is shit yeah like this is shit yeah it's like it's, yeah it's satisfying it's like just viscerally satisfying one of the questions i had about the show in particular well first of all you got the show picked up mm-hmm. and that's why you moved to la yeah and it's going into its fifth season now uh fourth season we're, we're we sh- we uh we premiere in august you premiere the show in august for season four season four much like the street pranks, the guests who come on the show, mm-hmm. I guess in the very, very beginning, it probably changed. People know what they're getting into now. More Not so. as much as you would think. Yes, people know more now than before, but there's a lot of guests that come on the show that don't have any idea what the show is. They have no clue. They have no clue. Their agent has set them up on it or something? And Yeah, they're, they're, they're publicists, but like we, we have a very... We, we don't necessarily tell everybody everything. Yeah. And it's, it's also really case by case because sometimes we have like, you know, big celebrities who are, you know, friends of the show that come on and, and you know, they know more about what they're getting into yeah. than, than, you know, like a reality TV star. Who, like Seth Rogen came on. Yeah, Seth Rogen, knew like, like Seth knew what, what was up, you know. Um, I mean, not everything. Like we, you know, he, he knew what the show was, but we didn't really like tell him everything that was going to happen. And, and. Does that happen with, with like Hannibal and stuff then too? Like some of the, like I saw a scene where like this lady came on and it looked like he did not know she was going to come on. Yeah. We try and, <laughs> we, it's not a knock on Hannibal. But we, 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 we try and keep Hannibal in the dark a little bit <laughs> <laughs> just because that it suits his, his, his way, you know, like, like I think that Hannibal reacts 
Hannah was a, a genius. He's sort of like a sort of savant. Um, and he he's just so good in the moment. And so <laughs> a lot of times, like, sure, we could, you know, uh, give him a bunch of lines and, and tell him all about these, like, guests that are coming on and da 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 da, da. But, like, I, I think he prefers and we prefer that he has, like, a, a fresh, authentic experience with the guest. But there is, there's a certain degree of, like, let's just see what happens. Okay, so you've been doing this. It's going to be four seasons now. Mm-hmm. Do you want to do another film? What do you want to do? I like comedy. You do? Uh, yeah. It's weird. In a certain way, I, I kind of feel like everything that I've been doing kind of led to this current project of working with Eric. Um, and did you already know? I guess I didn't even ask that. Did you know Eric before? I mean, you pitched a show around Eric. Yeah, well, uh, you, you know, develop we, it with we, Eric? We, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We met Eric in New York. We were all broke during a music video shoot. And he was like, hey, I, I want to... Wait, what was he doing in the music video? He was performing. He was like a comedy bit. Okay, gotcha. That was this noise rock video. Um, and he basically said, hey, I want to do it like a talk show that takes place in the future. And it was a really weird concept. We sort of developed this, you know, what is now the Eric Andre show together. And I just had this sensation after we, you know, we, we shot the pilot, like the presentation uh, before the pilot. We shot this presentation in this abandoned bodega... Did it look like the pilot or not? Yeah, exactly like it. And, you know, so we shot this thing. And I remember standing on the subway platform with, you know, all of our props. It's like, you know, we made it for no money. Totally outside of the TV system, you know. Just on your own. Totally on our own. Total outsiders. I remember also this, like, visceral moment, like, that I had when, you know, I told my mom that I wanted to act. I remember standing on the subway platform after we, after we shot the thing. And I said to myself, this is either going to go nowhere or it's going to be the biggest project that I've ever worked on in my life um, and the most successful. And I also knew it would be the latter. Not to be like cocky, but like I, I, just, yeah. I just knew in my gut. I was like, this is, this is going to be huge. Like I just, I just felt it. How did you guys find Adult Swim then? Well, Eric had, Eric had moved to L.A. Um, like a year after we had done the presentation. And, and like he it, was working on some shows too. Yeah, yeah, he was acting. It, it was yeah. It was like a couple of years before it it really went to adult Adult Swim. But as soon as it did find its way to Adult Swim, legend has it that it was the fastest pickup that Adult Swim has ever made. Really? Yeah. You mean like turned around into episodes or what? How does well, that work? Uh, well, basically, like tell me the language. Apparently, like Mike Lazo saw the presentation that we made and immediately said, like, let's order a pilot. We went out to L.A., made a pilot. You know, we thought it would be like months before we heard back about like, you know, whether it was going to go or not or whatever. But I think like as soon as we got back from L.A. to New York, they were like, they were like, they were like, all right, we're we're doing it. Did you have time to edit it? Like how fast did that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had to edit and deliver it. How long did that take you to shoot the pilot, edit and deliver? It was like a month. Okay. Yeah. Um, Is that what an episode takes now? I mean, I'm probably a lot quicker, right? Is that what an episode takes now? Actually, kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't shoot episode by episode, but like, you know, we, we shoot in blocks. So we, we do all of the studio stuff and then we do all of the prank stuff. Oh, you do? Yeah. And then, and then we edit it all, you know, at once. Well, um, this is another, this leads to, we were going to talk about this briefly, but I, and we'll jump back. You were in a writer's workshop today. Or right. Writer's room. Yeah. Writer's room. Mm-hmm. That's what it's called. Yeah. So you were getting ready for. So, so we're, we're all done with this season. What we were writing today was. Ideas for we're actually going to go to the Republican National Convention 
and the Democratic National Convention. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> to shoot to shoot bits to to promote the show. Um to promote the show, but also like they're gonna be their own bits that will air. Yeah. Um just, you know, on on the web and, and on, you know, uh on, on TV to promote the show. So you uh you were doing that all day today. Yeah. And then when uh when will you be done with it? How many times do you do this before you go? Uh we're done. We we did it yesterday and today. So you're set. You know what you're gonna do while you're there. No. So well during the writers' room, um, we generate, and, and this is kind of how it works on the show uh, proper, is that you know we will we'll organize a writers' room with a bunch of comedians um, and writers that we. Is love. it different every time, or is it just the? It's different every time. Group? It's well, we have a core crew, but, but you like, bring in extras on the outside. It, some people can't make it, you know, like yeah, yeah, everybody's yeah. busy, so so Schedules. the room the room is constantly shifting and changing. Um, but that's nice. Some you know? Hayek, Matt Damon can't meet your schedule. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and like the energy, uh, and uh, kind of going back to like cooking and like sort of dinner party thing, like the constellation of how you uh, sort of cast the the writers in a writer's room, you know, it's just like you're, you're, you're creating a chemistry. It's like you're organizing a, din- a dinner party and, and the, the, the resulting... Um, so does Eric have some ideas about the comics he wants in there and then you have some ideas or how does that oh, work? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You totally. just sort of like figure out who you're going to put in that mix to get like the perfect sort of stew. Yeah, exactly. How many people usually? It depends. Some This writer's room was like five people. So it's not um, a lot. Not a lot, but like on the show, you know, f- when we're writing the show, it'll be like seven, eight people. Okay. Um, And it's like, it, you need to strike a balance. It's like, if there's too many people, yeah, then like too many voices, then 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 nobody really gets heard, and and you can't really like lacks identity. Um, but then if there's too few people, then it's like really exhausting, and like uh, is Eric not always a part energy. of that thing too? Oh yeah, I mean Eric is you know it's it's really he's in every part of this whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know the show really it's 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 predominantly Eric's voice, you know. Yeah. Um and um you know I I, I collaborate with him and and you know everybody does. Um, but you know, really it's, it's, you know, Eric is a, is a visionary and, and, you know, like his sensibility and, and, and what he does is, is, you know, really the, the driving force of the show. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, that said, I mean, you know, it's an incredibly collaborative effort and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, (laughs) I'm there every step of the way too, um, uh, doing what I do, which is, which is different from what Eric does. The alchemy therein is, is how the show happens. Right. It takes those two different aspects to come together. It takes so many different aspects to come together. So yeah, so 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 that's how the writers' room happens. um, Is that we you know get a bunch of writers together, sit in a room for you know however many hours, um, and just generate all a ton of ideas. And a writer's assistant you know diligently takes notes and organizes those notes. And then and then after that, then there's like a culling and refining process where we look at those notes, like you know myself and Eric. And sort of decide, you know, what, what's going to work, what what's is. working and like what we're resonating with. And, and then there's like another process of writing, which is, you know, kind of like more, more Eric's thing on his own almost um, uh, of, of taking those things and, and, and refining those ideas into like more of a scripted form. And then we take that scripted form, you know, start really working with uh, our producer to make to make that reality. Adult Swim is, is awesome, but like. We're not given like a million dollars a show, you know, so it's like we, we kind of have to work with what we have. And so there's a lot of creative producing that needs to happen. Um, and at this point, there's a lot of like, you know, really, really loyal, amazing collaborator, collaborators that we have uh, in every position and, and who really 
understand the show and 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 kind of give the show a life of its own this has really been incredibly informative <laughs> no it, it has i had no idea at all all this went into it i i mean obviously anybody listening in la if you're part of the industry you sort of know how some of the stuff works i i would assume each show has their own process and sort of method yeah. to go about everything sure you were saying you love comedy mm-hmm. do you want to continue to do this for a while do you yeah do you but yeah. do you have a desire to go back into feature film and do something in the comedic realm or do you yeah yeah um and 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 that's what we are planning on next you are yeah oh. so we're you know uh, we're working on a i'm not sure how much i, I, I should yeah. say but but uh but yeah we we, something... we are we are working on a a feature film um that is really um based off of the, the pranks that we do on the show and so that's moving forward. Um, that's exciting. Yeah. This is a totally different feature film, by the way. Yeah, totally, totally different. <laughs> totally different. This is really great. Um, I wanted to go in and ask you about Hiawaska and stuff, but I uh-huh. don't think we have time okay, sure. for this. But yeah. maybe you come back and like talk yeah, to me. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> you, you partake in the Hiawaska? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, we'll get into that next time Uh, Katow thank you so much for coming on dude thanks for having me I had a blast it's been a lot of fun yeah thanks so much thanks so much 